Shouldn't we always be starting with Taylor Swift? Taylor Swift <laughs> has been in the news. Hi, everybody. It's No Show with uh, Jeff Borman and Matt Brown. Taylor Swift has been in the news a lot uh, in relation to hotels and uh, travel and tourism. Jeff, why? It's an unstoppable force. I have no idea why. Uh, I just, from the very start of uh, the tour dates being announced, you could see hotel inventory just fly off the shelf. Uh, and I think finally the industry's catching up a bit, at least the news side of the travel industry is really starting to catch up with the fact that this is, as a GM in Nashville called it, it's like having a Super Bowl that lasts three nights. There's what has become known as the Taylor Swift effect. And they are speculating that the Eras Tour is adding somewhere around $98 million in room revenue to the U.S. hotel industry, which is a staggering amount. And when she performed in Chicago uh, a few weeks ago, she had this massive impact. I think Chicago, like the tourism board, or I can't remember what the body was, but they said, oh, yeah, we've had the highest hotel occupancy ever, <laughs> according to the city's marketing people. More than 44,000 hotel rooms were booked each night on Friday and Saturday, which is an all-time high. Is this really something new? Is this the first time that we are really tracking this kind of information? Like, was this the case when like Led Zeppelin would go around or like oh, U2 no. when they do a big tour? <laughs> right? Yeah, I think going back to the, the Zeppelin era is probably a bit too far. You might be able to make a case for the Beatles, but I think that was still local audiences, not travel. I don't know that, you know, going back that far, the 60s and 70s, that you would see hordes of people traveling to shows uh the grateful dead were probably the exception to that and that really even didn't pick up until maybe the 70s where you had you know the the traveling grateful dead extravaganza that would you know go on tour with them and even that i'm not sure that was necessarily great for the local economy uh, so much as it was good for the, the like the grateful dead had their own economy but i mean when when i look at philadelphia i think that market over the taylor swift weekend did the highest average rate since they hosted the Democratic National Convention in 2016, oh, wow. which is a complete total takeover of city. And if you go around the different stops on on the Eras tour, Atlanta, you know, she caused some bad blood with the Georgia World Congress uh, because it happened to be right over a citywide. Uh, and so the convention itself, uh, you had some complications getting people in, access to restaurants, the kind of things you would normally have, you know, all of downtown Atlanta to yourself. Uh, instead, there were 40,000 Swifties who took over everything. And uh, Cincinnati, in a couple of weeks, uh, prices are testing karma with nosebleeds going at $1,500. And good tickets, uh, I saw, I think it was just yesterday, there are tickets available for $87,000, Matt. So if you still want to go, you can. Who's paying that money? Is that? I wonder if that's a stunt. Is somebody really going to pay seven thousand? Yeah, it no. must be. But the, but but tickets at nosebleeds in Paycor Stadium at fifteen hundred dollars—that's absurd. Well, all this has gotten us talking about the state of summer travel. All this Taylor Swift talk just gets us in a summer mood. So uh, <laughs> this week we're going to be going over kind of a random grab bag of a lot of stuff that's kind of coming to the fore this summer and. You know, one of the big announcements you see in the in the trades, you know, like summer's back, you know, we're fully out of the pandemic, travel is roaring back and all kinds of different ways. Do you think that's true or are we still kind of dealing with it? I mean, we're obviously still still dealing with the effects of the pandemic, right? For sure. And you know, there, there are so many different ways to slice it. I think 
your straight answer, Matt, no, uh, we're not back. And actually, the Taylor Swift uh, segue was perfect. It didn't mean it this way, but inflation is just a problem with the comparisons. If we look back to 2019, which people don't really want to do when they're talking about how strong the industry is recovering, uh, but just on a real and nominal ADR level, uh, we're nowhere close. Uh, there was a Skift article recently that did a, a comparison to uh, room rates in, I think it was May, they may have been talking June, but we're $150 around the country. Uh, on a, a real ADR comparison, uh, the nominal rate would have been $125. And, and so even though we're saying, yeah, the, the industry's up in price, uh, that should then lead to being up in profit. It's really not the case. Uh, inflation needs to be by 2025, uh, prices need to be about 25% higher than 19. And I think that's a nice, easy takeaway, right? Uh, 25 by 25. Well, the industry is not quite there. And that's just to get back to normal. And that's just the top line. Uh, the bottom line has even more cost pressure. Uh, you know, food prices, uh, people seem to think that hotels are uh, gouging with the $35 hamburger. Uh, that used to be 18, uh, but that's the cost of it, right? The profitability for a hotel has actually gotten worse, even as that price has gone so much higher. Labor prices are way higher. The cost of food is way higher. You know, transportation to get anything delivered to a hotel significantly higher. Uh, there, there's still a lot of problems in the marketplace. I wonder if this is also uh, applicable to airlines because there were a couple of stories that came out over the last week about how passengers to Europe should expect to pay something like 36% more than they did last year for airfare. Mm-hmm. And I, I think like European tickets are averaging somewhere around $1,100, $1,200 a ticket. And for Asia, which is already expensive to go to, it's it, to begin with, it's uh, I think like $1,800 on average per ticket. And there's just no sign of that coming back down to earth anytime soon. And it, it just feels so long ago, those kind of super savers you could get to Europe, that that feels like a lifetime ago, you know? Air capacity is still, at least on a trans-oceanic comparison, not the same. Uh, so the volume of flights between Europe and America are still lower than 19. Uh, the volume of flights between Asia and America are significantly lower uh, the Chinese outbound market, which is the largest outbound travel market on the planet, uh, has still not even returned to 50% of what it was. Internally, right, Chinese demand for China is okay. It's fine. Uh, but that demand that pours into Southeast Asia, the demand that goes into Hawaii, the demand that comes over to the West Coast of the United States, uh, nowhere near close. And I don't think it will be anytime soon. Uh, this show tries not to get into politics, but the saber rattling between countries that's taken place over the last six years, not just the pandemic, uh, but even pre-pandemic, you know, the economic war and the kind of the new Cold War effect that's going on between America and China that had already kind of started movement toward less Chinese to American uh, visitors. And then the pandemic just literally shut it off. Right. Let's let's lighten the mood. Let's let's think happy thoughts. <laughs> yes, should it's, we? it's June. Um, the, the birds are chirping outside. I'm actually in, in Wisconsin. I'm on the road right now in a big National Lampoon uh, vacation. We're out here in the in the glorious Midwest in Lake Country, and uh, we've been looking at all kinds of news stories. And w- one that just came up uh, a week or so ago is something on travel insurance. I can't remember where I read this. Do you? 
buy trip insurance. Like when you get uh, like that little ping at the bottom of your purchase, whether it's an airline ticket or Expedia or whatever, how are you kind of purchase tickets? Do you, do you insure your travel? No. You never do it? Never. Do you do it with a car? Never. First of all, I've had the pleasure of seeing some of the numbers behind travel insurance. There's a reason right, they want to sell it aggressively. It's not in your favor. One of the things, uh, this was actually a life lesson for me that started when I bought my first piece of stereo equipment, Matt. I was 15 years old and I bought a receiver and at the electronics store uh, in Cincinnati, Ohio, the clerk- Was it, was it called electronics store? It was called Swallens. It was, a, I mean, this was- your local mom and pop shop, if there ever was one. And the guy working behind the counter, even though the story takes place in the late 80s, uh, you should picture somebody from like that 70s show. Uh, who was the dude with the crazy, you know, red afro in that 70s show? Picture that guy, Hyde. Yeah. He asked people, me, people don't talk about Hyde much these days. <laughs> there's, there's probably a reason. He had some, yeah, he had some other stuff going on off off screen. But yes, go ahead, please. Picture this guy behind the behind the counter in 1980 something. And uh, he asks young 15-year-old me, would you like to buy the insurance plan, the three-year extended warranty or something? And I looked at him, and it was the first time in my life I was faced with that decision. And he could see me kind of working it through. And he goes, Hey man, don't buy it. I was like, oh, why not? And he said, they wouldn't sell it to you if it was good for you. Mm. And that life, like life lesson from a stoner at a Radio Shack, you know, that's Maybe awesome. That's what we should title it. Uh, but wow. it stuck with me forever. Every like, they will not sell it if it's better than you. And I promise you, they've done your math, their math, way better than you can possibly do yours. Another story that came up is this pilot hotel for pilots, for employees only. Is that right? Yeah, American Airlines at DFW, uh, they're spending, I think, a quarter of a billion dollars on a 600-room hotel uh, called Skyview 6. I think that, I don't know if that's the official name or temporary project name, but yeah, basically they're they're doing it. I think the stated reason is to give pilots the experience they want, uh, which is, uh, you know, the kind of rooms that have total blackout curtains so they can sleep any time of day, the immediate check-in. Uh, that they want, you know, never want to delay because they got to get right to bed and get right back up, you know, those kind of things. And of course, proximity to DFW, which if it's not the largest airport in the Western hemisphere right now, it's about number two, I think. So anyway, American that runs 85% of their flights out of DFW, it's their hub, it's their biggest terminal, uh, you name it. So they're giving their employees a hotel dedicated only to American Airlines employees. I wonder if there'll be pressure for people who are in some kind of mileage club to want to stay at that hotel? Like, will they get outside pressure from customers to want to stay That's there? interesting. Or just who refuse, right? They absolutely stay away. What happens if they walk their own pilots? Do you think they'll oversell that hotel? That's a good question. No. Uh, well, I don't know. Yeah. Like, what happens when there's no room at the end? Do you think they'll offer vouchers to their own people? Like, for $400, $700, or $1,000, we'll pay you, but you got to put it in right now. Yeah, right? Because that happens everywhere else in travel. That's a mathematical reality of travel, is that you have things that are overbooked, you have things that are undersold, and it doesn't matter if the hotel is owned by the airline, right? Like, they're going to deal with the same problems that I think any hotel is going to deal with. Another story that caught our eye uh, was this thing that showed up in Travel and Leisure about airport wait times. You know, whenever companies want to uh, kind of have a little PR press, uh, they do like a travel study, 
And there is a luggage storage company called Bounce, and they just did a new study, came out a month or two ago, and it breaks down which U.S. airports have the longest and shortest wait times. Can you guess what has the longest overall wait time? And that's combining security and passport control and the whole kit and caboodle. What airport has the longest overall wait time? LAX. Good guess. No. Similar animal. Out west, San Francisco uh, doesn't have enough passengers to have a good wait time or bad wait time right now. Actually, San Francisco is second. Is it really? San Francisco International Airport has an average overall wait time of 47 minutes and 18 seconds. Wow. I know. That's amazing considering how bad traffic is. And also the fact that they've got maybe the most beautiful state-of-the-art airport in America. The, Mm -hmm. The milk terminal is outrageously cool. The longest overall wait time in the United States is John F. Kennedy in New York City. And it is 48 minutes and 24 seconds. Wow. Newark, which also serves New York City, has the shortest security wait time at only three minutes and six seconds. And then it's followed by an airport you and I know fairly well, BWI, which has an average wait time of only four minutes. Wow. Again, nobody goes through it. It has to be short. On the cost-saving front, you found an article. Actually, I think we both saw this independently and then commented the same day on it. I actually had a, a had a question from one of our many fans. It was referencing something that you said uh, a month or two ago about what's the next olive to be removed from the salad? They had never heard that phrase. It was is this? Oh, I know. We were thinking about charging. That's right. Uh, there is a suggestion to ch- charge for use of the lavatory. Uh, so in reference to the olive off the salad, one of the you know most impactful, uh, I don't necessarily want to say good or bad, right? But one of the most impactful moments in the economics of travel was in 1987. And it, he, it was Robert Crandall, and he was the CEO of American Airlines. Uh, he's the one who created that idea that by just removing the olive from the in-flight salad, no customer would ever notice the difference, even if they cared. Uh, and it would save... American Airlines, something like $90,000 that year, just by taking oh, wow. olives off the set. And what this really began was a snowball effect of you know, value engineering is kind of the, the friendly common term that people use for doing that kind of thing, which is if we just take away a little here and we just nibble at the fringe over there. And what you, 30, 40 years later, what you have is an airline industry in America where they've taken everything out of the service experience. But what began with just an olive and it extended over into the modern asset management approach at a lot of hotels too, identifying every little piece of the process and the delivery, putting a value on it and asking if you get that, that commensurate value from it. I found the article here and it's uh, from View from the Wing. Obviously, the headline here is airlines could save $100 million a year if everyone went to the bathroom before boarding. Luke Jensen and Brian Yutko calculated that, quote, if every passenger remembered to go to the bathroom before boarding, shedding an average of 0.2 liters of urine, the airline would save $2.66 in fuel per flight. Is that true? Well, yeah. Okay. So it's only 2 bucks and 66 cents. Fine. But with about 40 million commercial flights a year, that tallies up to $100 million. I, I was going to say air, airlines can't do that because it sounds too nitpicky, but that's a huge part of the airline experience now is that everything feels nitpicky. Uh, let's see. What do we want to do next? What do you want to do next? 
Well, we were talking about inflation and how room rates are going up, but the, it really isn't price gouging by hotels. And I'm not just defending my people here. Uh, you got to keep up with with inflation. And so far, the industry is trying like heck to do it, but it hasn't kept up with inflation, point blank. And Matt, it, it reminded me of some of the questions that you and I have taken over the last year. Uh, one in particular, uh, we did an episode, I don't know if it was called this or if we just talked about where you'd build your hotel. And uh, you chose favorite places of yours, right? That's right. I led with my heart. And my <laughs> my heart took me to places like the Catskills and took me to Death Valley, California. And those dreams were crushed. They were they were obliterated by you. And they were I done did, so yeah. with impunity and frankly, with a little bit of spite. I think it's good that we revisit this moment <laughs> as, as part <laughs> Actually, of my therapy. It's probably, it's probably not good to revisit it because <laughs> I think really what's happened since we had that conversation is the evidence was in that says, you know, you can't choose to put a hotel uh, in a place like Joshua Tree or Death Valley in California uh, because the high tax, the high cost labor, uh, and just the regulation of the business uh, is too intrusive. So I mean, if you're really going to pick where you want to build it, I was, I, here's a great example. I met with uh, some hotel developers. This is a couple of months ago and using Lake Tahoe as the example, obviously Lake Tahoe, uh, there's actually a little town called state line and it sits you know, equally on you know, half the lake in California, half the lake in Nevada. And I was talking to developers about a project. And if, you, if you're standing at state line and you look to the left, no pun intended, and you see California and you look to the right and you're choosing to build the exact same hotel on either side of that state line, what is the cost difference going to be? And the estimates I got from uh, five different developers were between 35 and 60% more to do it on the left side of that line. That's unbelievable. I mean, all of Lake Tahoe should be a national park anyway, but that's that 40% is <laughs> just bananas. And and it's not just the, you know, the, I think the the outer regions of California are, uh, you know, it's tough to build out there for all the reasons you mentioned. I think it's tough even to do it in the cities. You know, San Francisco has been in the news a lot this summer. I think park hotels and resorts, they're getting out of San Francisco, right? Aren't they getting, aren't they giving their two hotels like back to the bank? And I wonder how this is going to affect other hotels in the city. Are are, are major hotels just going to kind of concentrate on East Bay, San Jose, kind of hit the ring of, of the Bay Area and sort of leave San Francisco alone for a second? You know, the city is in knots. It can't get out of its own way. Uh, in the case of park, which... You know, this is this is two of their biggest assets too. It's not just making a point of handing back a building. Uh, these are two of the biggest buildings in their portfolio. You know, one of them is a two thousand room hotel, I think, uh, and the other one's no slouch. You know, a thousand room hotel on Union Square. Uh, so, in in some ways, this might be a game of chicken because the bank doesn't want it either. Uh, but what but it, what it really is is it's an indictment on the inability to recover from the last three years. Uh, if you look around uh, around the U.S., you've got, you, let's take Florida, immediately was operating at above pre-pandemic levels, immediately. Again, not to get into policy, but policy made that happen, right? They were open to travel when places were not open to travel, and so travelers went there, period. As you look then, let's go up the East Coast to the Northeast. The Northeast is now thriving, right? From, from Washington's okay because the government's got 
too much of an influence on the marketplace. But as soon as you get north of you know, Philadelphia, New York, up to Boston, the Northeast is really thriving. Uh, in part because transatlantic travel is back. Europeans are coming here, not in the same degree that Americans are going to Europe, but still they are coming. And where do they go first? They go to the Northeast part of the US mostly. Uh, business travel between you know, London and Boston, back maybe not full swing, but really going. When you go out to uh, the West and you say, okay, if you're in, looking at the business that you have in Florida, it's already doing great. It's better than it ever was and it might actually be slowing a bit. If you look at the Northeast, it's rising and you feel like the outlook's really great. When you look to the West Coast, uh, Southern California is a little bit of an exception, but you know, from San Francisco up to Portland and Seattle, you have almost no inbound travel from Asia still. That's their inbound market internationally, and it's dry. Uh, and you've got essentially policies uh, that give no encouragement for seeing a fast turnaround. See, we keep saying that we're going to bring the show lighter because it's summer. <laughs> <laughs> it's just doom and gloom. Let's take this back to the top. You take, start take three. With, a, with an insurance question. Even insurance companies, uh, I think State Farm and Allstate about a month ago announced that they are pulling out of California. They don't want to even insure the businesses there. And that's because of the wildfire risk and the rising construction costs. And essentially, if they have to rebuild a building because of a disaster, they don't think they can do it in those markets without bankrupting themselves. So even insurance companies don't want to insure businesses in California right now. Right. Did that make it lighter? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we go. One thing we've been talking a little bit about is uh, is travel shows. And, you know, there's a recent announcement that season three of White Lotus will be filmed in Thailand. And we were thinking about what other travel shows are out there that people ought to check out. Jeff, you want to go first? You had a few here. I watched recently the MH370, The Plane That Disappeared. That uh, was a four-hour Netflix documentary. Frankly, could have been about a one-hour documentary. It would have been a little better. Spoiler alert, they don't know. Okay, so four <laughs> hours and no solution. Four hours later, they're like, we still don't really know where the plane is. Okay. This sounds like you're making it sound like one of those old other you know, shows that used to be, those true crime shows that used to be on A&E. No one will ever know the mystery. Like like it promises to solve the mystery at the top of the hour. And then by the end, right. it's like, no one knows what really happened that night. Like, <laughs> what have, you, have you seen any good travel shows? I watched with mom and dad. I watched the Searching for Mexico show with Eva Longoria and was actually pretty good. I It's the sequel to the Stanley Tucci show, which CNN for some reason canceled. I thought... Stanley was kind of riding high with that and and got a lot of buzz off that show. But CNN decided to go in a different direction. But Searching for Mexico is pretty good. It's fancy. She goes to fancy places. But she also hits some, some places off the beaten path. And she is very thoughtful and empathetic. And it makes you want to travel to Mexico. Um, I, uh, so I recently saw one. Um, I, only, I could only stand two episodes. Uh, there's a show with Eugene. Is it Levy or Levy? I would say Eugene Levy. Okay. Uh, it's called The Reluctant Traveler. Yes. Well, yes. You sh I, it's not good. <laughs> Which is a shame because I love Eugene. Everybody loves Eugene Levy. He's one of the great comic forces of the last 50 years. It's like, it's okay if he's doing a travel show and he's not doing joke jokes. But there's something about watching somebody who's a little bit of a curmudgeon, essentially given red carpet treatment at all these amazing locations around the world and kind of shrugging their shoulders at it. That's That doesn't sit well in this era of, of economic and social instability. 
you, you and I, uh, one of the things that brought us together into doing this project we call No Show is our love for Anthony Bourdain. And I was watching The Reluctant Traveler and it made me miss him so dearly. Instead of embracing everything that was new, every new flavor, understanding the culture and how it evolved to be what you experience today and how it's just not what you're used to. And that's the beauty of travel. Eugene just does the complete and total opposite and just kind of bitches about everything and wants a burger. I it absolutely turned me off. Um, uh, I watched a show uh, on National Geographic called about lost luggage, all the stuff that you leave at TSA, all the stuff you leave on airplanes and where it goes. It's kind of interesting. It's a huge market. Uh, and so it all gets, I mean, of course, right? But it all gets resold. Yeah. It, it um, After certain protocols of being held at the lost and found uh, at the airport where it was recovered, call it 90 days. I don't know what the time frame is. Uh, it then is purchased uh, literally pennies to the dollar uh, by a company who stores the stuff in Alabama, I think, at a giant warehouse. Uh, you can go sift through it and it offers it on uh, those products online. Uh, of course, there's no refunds, no returns. doesn't right. work. It's you know, buyer beware. But it's kind of an interesting show. And what was most interesting about it was the scale of the marketplace for lost stuff. It's it's immense. Dude, was there a wine show that you were trying to get me into? What was it? A wine show? Oh, yeah. Uh, World of Wine on Bon Appetit. Um, mm. Reminded me of uh, Psalm School. It was awesome. Um chef or chef and Salma. He's definitely a Salma. Yeah, it might be a chef also. Uh, in a, call it 20 minute episode, uh, he'll take you through uh, wine tastings. The only part, is, the only downside is you can't do them with him, uh, but he'll take you through the tasting notes and regions. And, you know, if you want to do, I watched one on Pinot Noir and he does Pinots, of course, from Burgundy, but then from Sonoma, a, a Pinot from Carneros, one from uh, Australia, one from Chile, one from South Africa. And he kind of lines them up and takes you through the notes on each one and what you're looking for in each region. Uh, really well done. And then he also turned, he did one on spirits uh, where he lines up bourbons and he talks a little bit about the history of bourbon and what a note would be from, you know, where uh, this, well, anyway, you get the point. Really interesting. Uh, world of wine. And it's not only about wine. You ready for the mystery question? Let's do it. It's summer. What's one theme park that everybody should visit? I recently went to Six Flags here in Dallas. Uh, the reason I put it up there is because it was like a walk in time. Uh, it's got all your big roller coasters, the modern stuff that attracts the you know people to come back year after year after year. But it was the first Six Flags. And the name Six Flags is, of course, from Six Flags over Texas, the Six Flags that have flown over the state. But what's cool about Six Flags here in Dallas is being the original, I think it was built in the 60s. And so you've got that theme parkiness that doesn't exist quite so much today. Almost that hokey throwback to, you know, like the, the Hanna-Barbera era. That was pretty cool. That was that was a walk back into a National Lampoon's uh, scene or two at Wally World. That was I enjoyed that. Have a great time in Toronto next week. And uh, I will talk to you very, very soon. <laughs>